Good morning. I'm going to get out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I just summarized the last lesson a little bit. I hope uh, you, you remember some of those things that we studied uh, last week and earlier in Acts chapter 2. But we've been studying through the beginning of Acts, which is the beginning of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, the kingdom starts here. This is the very start of it all. Jesus has come to his disciples. He spent 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom. And then he ascends into heaven and on the day of Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit. He pours out uh, the, the ability to speak in tongues, speak in different languages that these men had never learned before. And in a crowd full of people from all different regions, they were hearing men speak their own language, and they were paying attention. And Peter says, this is the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And men and women would speak and prophesy and tell you about the good things of the kingdom and the restoration of Israel and all the things that God has promised in the Old Testament coming true. And he says in verse 22, Jesus. Everybody in the audience knew Jesus. Jesus had been with them. He had been showing his miraculous power to them for years. And the religious leaders hated him. The religious leaders had him arrested. And all the people rejected Jesus and said, He must be a fraud because the religious leaders hate him. Look at him. He's arrested. He can't save himself. And so they had him crucified. And they yelled out, Crucify him! And now Peter comes and says, Jesus is the answer to all of the promises that were made in the Old Testament. It's Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever been caught in a sin? You ever been, uh, had, had something that you've done become known and you're stuck because you've offended someone or, or you've done something that is deserving of punishment and you really just want to get out of the punishment, but also you've hurt somebody and they feel horrible about it. You feel horrible about it and you just want to make things right. It says they were cut to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart? You ever had your heart ache over what you've done? Because you've made the mistake. You've done the wrong thing. 
these Jews have murdered the Messiah. They've made the biggest mistake anybody could ever make. And the question they have is, what do we need to do? You see in them a completely submissive heart. A recognition that the things that Peter has said is true. And not a denial of any of those things. Not saying, no we didn't, we didn't kill the Messiah, we didn't cause him to be crucified, the Romans did. He says, no, you did that at the hands of the Romans. You crucified him. And they say, yeah, we did. Everything makes sense to them as as they see the miracles and they hear the explanation. It all makes sense. This is true. Jesus must have really been resurrected from the dead. He must have really ascended into heaven because there's all these eyewitnesses who were saying the exact same thing. And how could they collaborate in such a way that they would believe a lie and tell that to us? No, Jesus is really living. He's, He's ascended into heaven. He's sitting on the right hand of God. And we are his murderers. What shall we do? Imagine that Peter could have said just about anything. And they probably would have said okay. Notice what Peter says. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to break this verse down a little bit this morning. We talked about it a little bit last week and this week. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. And and recognize the importance of the words that are being said here. Because remember, this is the very first sermon that starts the kingdom off. And this is the answer to the question, we have sinned. We are not worthy to be in the presence of God. We're not worthy to be in the kingdom of God. What shall we do? And the answer is found in this verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let's break this down a little bit first. He says repent. We might breeze through this. But I want to think about this a little bit. This is actually the hardest thing that Peter says. Repent. What is repentance? What does that mean? Well, repentance is not saying, I will change. That's not repentance. Lots of people say, I will change. And they don't repent. It's not just some words that come out of our mouths saying, I will change, I will do things better, I will do, do such and such and give up such and such. It's not, it's not just merely those words coming out of a mouth. But it's a heart that desires lifelong transformation. A commitment to lifelong transformation. Peter is not talking about the people here on the day of Pentecost saying, I feel really bad, I'll try not to murder anybody ever again. He would not have been satisfied with that response. That would not have been repentance. But it was a commitment to a submission to the the will of God. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do it. A heart that is changed, that is transformed, a heart of flesh 
A heart that is pierced by the word of God, by all the word of God, and wants to do it. That is cut by the word of God. And seeks to do the things that God has asked to do. Well, that sounds like a lot of work, and it is. This is the hardest part of everything. This is the hardest part of receiving the salvation that God has given. But is it too much to ask? I think some might believe that. Maybe there's somebody here who would ask the question, can I be saved without repenting? (laughs) Can I receive forgiveness of sins and, and not really change my heart and my commitment to the world? Because I love this world. I love the things that are here. I love to do the things that make me happy, that give me joy and pleasure in this world. I love to be in line with this world and to do the things that the world likes. Can I just do those things still And be saved? Well, that's what Israel tried to do over and over again in the Old Testament. Here's a passage from Hosea. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. God blessed Israel and gave them everything. And then they built altars to other gods and and worshipped other gods. And they said they loved God and they wanted to worship God and they believed in God. And then God knew what was in their heart. Their heart was false. And so God took everything away from them. And he judged them. The northern kingdom was taken off into captivity in Assyria. The southern kingdom was taken off into captivity into Babylon. Why? Their heart was false. They would say, I repent. I will change my ways. And they did not. There was no change. There was no turning away from sin and turning to the Lord to seek the Lord with all their heart. It was false. But in the New Testament, These Christians do not have a false heart. What has been promised by God back in Ezekiel has happened. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will bring about a great repentance at the knowledge of the murder of my Messiah, I will bring about a great repentance, is essentially what happened. These people heard repent and they understood we are nothing and we are horrible sinners and what we desire and what we're doing every day in our life is selfish and self-serving and it's failing to give God the proper honor and respect and love that he deserves. And so, they're told to repent. And they're told to commit to a lifelong pursuit of the will of God. Now, this is not, I decide to be saved and I do everything right at this point. But it is, I decide to be saved 
I decide to submit my heart to God. And the word of God cuts me throughout life. And I am changed by it. So that by the end of life, I'm not the same person I was on the day of salvation. I have been transformed by the word of God. I have changed. I have turned away from sin. And I have turned toward God and pursued him. That is what repentance is. Now the question is, how many in our world understand that as the requirement, as an expectation for someone to be saved from their sins and from judgment. I think we all know it. But I think Satan's working really hard to make it to where we justify not doing it. This is the bottleneck of salvation. We read the next thing is be baptized. This is the one we all get up in arms about and there's a lot of discussion about. But man, compared to repentance, this one's easy, isn't it? I mean, repentance is the hard work. It's the hard thing that God asks of people who would come to him and receive forgiveness. That they would actually submit their hearts to a life transformation. That they would stop doing the sins that they were doing. That maybe they quit their job that's causing them to sin. That they, maybe they, they ditch their friends that are causing them to sin. That they would have a complete change. Compared to that, baptism is easy. But man, have we messed this up. <laughs> the word baptized means to be immersed in water could go into the idea of translation and transliteration, but that word means to be immersed in water, submerged in water, dipped in water, and brought up out of water. And that is what he was calling for them to do. You remember earlier, back in chapter 1, Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Is that a reference to an immersion in the Holy Spirit somehow? We're going to have the, a little cloud here that we immerse people in. No, it's, you're immersed in water, and there's something about the Holy Spirit in that immersion that's going to be going on. But in our culture today, baptism is greatly misunderstood. On one hand, we have people who overemphasize baptism. And on the other hand, we have people who underemphasize baptism. And we don't want to be either of those. We want to have the right emphasis on baptism. So let's talk about each of these. Let's talk about overemphasis of baptism. And this is the idea that baptism carries some kind of a magic to it. That simply by being immersed in the water and brought out, that now you've been given your get-out-of-jail-free card, and now you're free to go and live and do whatever else you want because you've been baptized, and all you've got to say to everybody is, hey, I was baptized, and I'm good because I was baptized. And, and forget the repentance part of what is said here. I was baptized, and that's what God wanted me to do, and I submitted to that, and I was baptized, so therefore I'm saved. Well, in the world today, there's people who have all kinds of emphasis that's being placed on baptism as though it's the most important thing. And there's a lot of rejection of that because some people even baptize babies. Now, it's more sprinkling than an immersion, but some people baptize babies. Why do they do that? 
They believe that the baptism itself has some kind of magical power that's working. But baptism is not just an immersion in water, but it is a statement of faith. If I'm dipped in water, that don't really mean anything. I, I did this all the time whenever I was a kid. We were at our swimming pool, and we'd just say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We just keep dipping each other, and we just make up new names, and we just keep dipping people. That's not really baptism, right? That's not really what this is about. Baptism is a faith that you're putting into God to work. And so merely being dipped in water means nothing. It has no power. The power is in the faith that should be in the baptism, in the individual who's being baptized. Now, some people might even say that's not there, and that's the people who are underemphasizing baptism. Some overemphasize it. We can overemphasize it. We can make our goal to just dunk people in water. We could base our success on how many people we've dunked in the water as though that means anything. But some people underemphasize baptism, and they say that this is what the text says. Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, because your sins have already been forgiven and you have already received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a completely different writing of the text. You've already been saved, so repent and be baptized. This would have been a great opportunity, by the way, for Peter to make that statement. I mean, it's the very first time that somebody comes forward and says, what shall we do? Peter could have said, I want you to come here. I want you to kneel with me and say this prayer. I want you to ask Jesus into your heart. And Jesus will come and he'll make a place in your heart and you'll be forgiven of all your sins. And, and this would have been a great opportunity to solidify the denominational teachings that are all around us. But that's not what, Jesus, what Peter does here. Peter doesn't say, come here and, and kneel and pray with me because... Your belief and your acceptance of Jesus has resulted in forgiveness of sins. He says, no, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't talk to them as though they've already received the forgiveness of sins or received the Holy Spirit gift, but as though they must do this in order to receive those things. The world around us says baptism is not necessary. It's not necessary. It's a statement of faith, yes. It's an outward showing of an inward faith, yes. And they might even say it's important. But it's not necessary. Does that sound confusing to you? How many things do you know that are important but not necessary? Trying to think of something. It's important, but it's not necessary. There's not really anything that we would say is important. If I were to say, kids, go get a bath. It's immediately important because I said it, and I'm their father. But if they were to say, well, it's not really necessary, and so they just go to their room and play. It's important, and it's necessary. If it's important, it's necessary. Those two things are not separate. You can't separate the two. And as, as denominational world is brought to the harsh truth that 
the Bible makes baptism out to be very important, not to overemphasize it and make it the only thing, but if, it's, if the Bible makes it clear that baptism is very important, then how can we say it is not necessary? If every believer, we get the impression, is baptized, how can we say it's okay to not be baptized? Is that not an act of defiance and rebellion? Because, oh, there was a thief before the kingdom began, who was saved by Jesus saying, you're forgiven, you'll be with me in paradise. We're not thieves on the cross, so that doesn't really make sense, does it? To underemphasize baptism is just as wrong as to overemphasize it. Baptism does have importance, and, and because it has importance, it is necessary. In fact, whenever we open up our Bibles and start reading about baptism, we learn baptism is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing that we, don't, we didn't even realize it at the initial baptism, what all was going on in the baptism. I, probably 99% of you had no idea all that was going on in the baptism and what the, what the Bible tells us is happening in baptism. Here's a, a few verses that illustrate this. In Galatians... Chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see this, you're all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do we become sons of God? Well, through faith. Because whenever you were baptized, you put on Christ. And you became a son of God. And you became an heir according to the promise, an offspring of Abraham. This is how we become sons of God. When we, through faith, are baptized. Romans 6 has another uh, explanation of baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ were baptized into his death? You were buried, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the beauty of what's going on in baptism? That we are united with Jesus in death as we are buried. And when we are raised, we are raised from spiritual death to walk in new life. We are brought from death to life. We are united with Christ in death. We are united with Christ in a resurrection like His that brings about a transformation. A cleanness that's happened. A sanctification that's taken place. Colossians says this, In him you also were circumcised, and the circumcision made without hands. Think about that. A, a, a circumcision, a surgery that's made not with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice that idea. There's a circumcision without hands that's going on. When you're buried with him in baptism, you have faith that God is working. 
in the baptism. You see how the two are connected, faith and baptism. If you have baptism and you have no faith that God is doing anything in the baptism, then is God going to do anything in the baptism? You have to have faith in the powerful working of God, that He is the one who is circumcising you. What does that mean? He says, And you were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. It means that you were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were raised with Christ, having all of your sins and trespasses forgiven. Because you put your faith in God that he would be willing to forgive all of your sins as you go through this water immersion. In Acts 22, we see Paul recounting his uh, salvation whenever he was uh, told what to do. And Nias, uh, not Nias, uh, I forgot his name. Uh, he said, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Notice what baptism is. It's where you're made a son of God. It's where you're, you're risen from spiritual death. It's where you're circumcised. And it's where you are washing away all of your sins. And it's where you're calling on the name of Jesus. Notice what it said back in Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You are doing it. You're calling on Jesus. You're calling on the name of Jesus. You're asking that God would forgive you of all of your sins by the forgiveness that Jesus, the King, the Messiah, is offering to you. You're calling on his name, which is exactly what Joel said everyone must do. Back in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from judgment that is deserved because of their sins. Saved from death. Saved from separation with God. And connected once again with God. Repent. Be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is interesting. Something we might also blow over. We're just so focused on the fact that it tells us to be baptized in the very first sermon ever preached in, on the day of Pentecost. And then we just completely forget about this. What is this about? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you've been here as we've studied through Acts, you've seen and understood that God has poured out His Spirit. That's what He said He would do. And, and Jesus said it back in John that He was going to give His Holy Spirit to His apostles and now it's talking about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and the pouring out of the Spirit and all that was a reference to a lot of blessings that would be given. Well, what does this mean, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, it could mean one, or two one of two things. Is the gift of the Holy Spirit a gift that the Holy Spirit gives you? Or is the gift of the Holy Spirit giving you the Holy Spirit? Indwelling in you. 
What is that? What is, what's the difference? And what does that mean if, if the Holy Spirit is given to you? What does that mean? Which is it? And, and how do we know? And what, what, is this, what is all of this about? Well, look at verse 39. He explains, he says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. As confusing as this is to a lot of us, we have some help, an explanation, that this is about the promise that was made. The promise from the Father that was foretold in the Old Testament is being given in this gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Whatever it is, whether it's the Holy Spirit being given to us or the gift that's being given to us, we need to verify that by understanding what is being promised. Because this is the fulfillment of the promises. That's what's happening here. A fulfillment of the promises. And the main promise that was given to us throughout the Old Testament is that there is coming a day when God will be our God and we will be his people. We will be his sons and his daughters. We will be united with him. And is that not everything we just read about in baptism? That it is a uniting, a bringing together of us into the kingdom of God, cleansed, purified, sanctified, made holy, so that we could approach the throne of God without any hindrance. A gift of spiritual life and renewal, forgiveness of all of our sins, sonship, heirs, according to the promise. I love these texts in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see the picture of the Holy Spirit when we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit coming and sealing us. It's probably referring to when we are Baptized, as we read about in Acts 2. Notice Titus makes it very clear that he's probably referring to what the Holy Spirit does in baptism. In Titus 3 verse 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Don't think baptism is a work done by us in righteousness. That's not what, it's, that's not what it is at all. But according to His mercy... By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is my best explanation for what is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is exactly what you're seeing here. A washing of regeneration, a renewal of the Holy Spirit, who God has poured out on us through Jesus so that we are sons and daughters of God. We are heirs with Christ of all the blessings that God has given us. Now, the question is for us, what are we going to do? Continue reading. It says, with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And it says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What are we going to do with this information? What are you going to do? Now, don't think about anybody else. What are you going to do 
with the understanding of God's will from this text? Are you going to say I'm not ready? I mean, I love God and I love Jesus and I really love what he's offering and I, I, I want to receive all that, but I don't really want to repent. Can I just receive it and still love the world and still live in the world and enjoy the world? Is that, is that possible? Is that, is that what we're going to do with this text? Is that what we're going to do with, with the good news that Jesus has resurrected, ascended into heaven, and become the Messiah for all mankind? And he doesn't bring fire and condemnation on a world that crucified him. He brings forgiveness. And that news, is that going to result in, I'm good. I don't want that. I just, I want to live my life and enjoy the little bit of time I have here. I know that you're offering me eternity, but... You know, that's hard for me to repent of all of these things. So I'm good. I'm not going to do that. Or maybe as you hear these words and you hear about baptism, there's a flood of justifications for why you're not going to come forward and be baptized today. Maybe you've already been baptized in the past and you think, well, that's, that's probably good enough. But we've seen and studied how... You have to have faith in God working in the baptism. It's not a work that you do. It's a work that God does in the baptism. And I'll tell you the same thing that I tell everybody who comes into my office who was baptized at some denominational church or, or somewhere else. Your salvation is not dependent on what I think about your salvation. Your salvation is dependent on your willingness to submit to what God has clearly stated in his word. And if you've been baptized in the past and you 100% believe that whenever you were baptized, you had faith that God was forgiving you of your sins as you went under those waters, that up until that point you were not forgiven, and whenever you went into the waters, God was working to forgive you of your sins, who am I to doubt you? I don't care who did the... The baptism, that's not really a requirement that's placed anywhere in Scripture, but the question is, did you have faith in the powerful working of God when you were immersed in water and risen? Now, you don't understand that you were then made a child of God. You don't understand that there was a circumcision. You don't understand a lot of things, but did you have faith that God was providing the forgiveness of sins? Were you baptized for the forgiveness of sins? And if you were not, baptized for that reason? Do you really have faith that God was working in your baptism to forgive you? It's not on me, and it's not my responsibility to force you to change your thought about your baptism, but I'm, I'd be concerned if you did not get baptized with that understanding at least that there's a forgiveness of sins going on in the baptism. I, I'm concerned about you. I don't know. I'm not going to claim to know I'm not God. I don't see and know all that he's doing. Uh, I was not there, and I did not go under the water with you and watch the Holy Spirit wash and regenerate your soul. Okay? I did not see that, or I don't have the ability to see that, and I can't tell that by looking at you. Okay? Nor can anybody else around you, for that matter. But I want you to be assured of your salvation. And this is the easy part. This is the easy part. 
That whole submitting your life to Christ, that's the hard part. Because God is offering not just anything. He's offering everything that really matters. He's offering the gift of all gifts. That you and I can be his children. His sons and his daughters. That we have an inheritance that is eternal. That can never be taken away from us. We can give it up, but we, we, it can never be taken away from us. How important is it for you to be united with Christ? This is more important than anything else. Jesus is our hope for eternal life. And if you have not connected with him and given your life to him, and if you're not currently giving your life to him, You need to reconsider. And you need to think about the danger of rejecting the one who is our Messiah. God has not provided us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we could say, I'm good. I'm going to go live my life and do what I want to do. He provided us with all of that so that then we would live for him. And this goes to every single one of us. Repentance, as I said, is the bottleneck. Repentance is the thing that we will least want to do of anything. If you want to be united with Christ, you have to submit to him. And not just submit a few things. You have to submit your whole heart. And you have to be willing to do whatever he calls for you to do. If you're here this morning and you have not received the salvation that he offers you, there is nothing preventing you except yourself. We will welcome you with open arms. If your heart is willing to submit to God and you want to be made right and you want that assurance that is being offered, we will help you in any way we can. All that's required is for you to come and submit yourself to God and let us know how we can help you. Please come as we stand and as we sing.